Rob said that I'm going to expose the text. What's, what my concern is, is that the text is going to expose me. <laughs> and uh, that's a good thing, actually, because I need to be exposed and then have to confront uh, the Lord, confront me about things. You know, I think it's safe to say that nobody is blessed as a people of God. Would you agree with that? Nobody in the world could possibly be as blessed as the people of God. It's like Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And as you read that chapter, first, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, you're, you're overwhelmed, honestly, by the abundance, taken back by the abundance of the blessings that are mentioned. There's so many. As you read that chapter, we're chosen in Christ. We are predestined in Christ. We are redeemed through his blood. We're forgiven of our trespasses. He, it says he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Uh, we're sealed to the day of redemption. Our trespasses are forgiven in Christ. So many blessings, the Holy Spirit sealed us. But I think the greatest of all blessings for the believer is the blessing of having a relationship. Now, as believers, we have a relationship with the Lord himself. I'd say that's the fundamental blessing. And that's because the Lord has saved us, saved believers, true believers, from their sin, given them, made us new creatures in Christ, new creation in Christ. And so now we have this privilege of walking with Christ and talking with him and serving him and, and loving him and, and being in his presence 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How, how better can it get than that? If you really think about that, that is a great blessing. In times of tribulation, times of trials, we know that he's, all, he's by our side. He's with us in all these things. There's no greater blessing than to be in relationship with the Lord. Now, the New Testament uses several illustrations to show us this fact. Uh, and, uh, for example, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, the church, church is likened unto a body, and Christ is likened unto the head. He's the head of the body. You have that relationship with him. The church does. Ephesians chapter 5, the church is likened unto a bride, and Christ is likened unto a husband. So he's got this close relationship with the church. 1 Peter 2, Christ is spoken of as a living stone, and believers are spoken of as living stones, plural, by which a house is being built, a house that's being built unto the Lord, a spiritual house. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, uh, the relationship of the believer with Christ is compared to that of a shepherd and a sheep. Jesus says there, I am the good shepherd, and then later on he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So we have this relationship with him. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. But when we get to John 15, we see another, yet another illustration of the relationship between Christ and the believer. It's a strong illustration. It, it's the one concerning the, the vine and the branches, which shows us that the relationship we have with the Lord is close. It's a close tie. It's an unbreakable bond we have with him. Uh, you know, um, the Christian life is all about our relationship with the Lord. You know, don't let anybody ever break it down for you into something less than that to where it becomes just a bunch of rules and regulations, and that's all it is. That's not what it is. Um, don't ever let it degenerate into that. So here's the key. Focus on your relationship with Christ. That's what your focus needs to be. And I think he's telling us this in so many ways in this chapter. And, and so Christ speaks of a vine and, a bra and the branches. And this particular illustration is perfectly suited um, uh, to our purposes and, and also to God's purposes. God reveals his purpose uh, for us, for us believers, in this, in this chapter here, in this illustration. You know, are you aware of what your purpose is, by the way? Many people live their lives, their whole entire lives, and they have no idea why they're even here. They get to the end of their life, and they question all their life, what, what is this all about? And, they, and they, have, they never find it out, but believers... Uh, should know their purpose. Should, it, God doesn't hide it from us. It's, uh, it's not hidden from us. It's a great purpose. It's a purpose that the Lord actually carries out through us. He carries it out through his people, which is amazing in, in and of itself. And without him, this purpose will utterly and completely fail. It's all about being involved with Christ intimately. And what is his purpose for his people? It's this, very important. The Lord's purpose for us is that we bear fruit... We bear fruit as the Father prunes us and as we abide in the vine in Christ in order to glorify the Lord. That's his purpose. Let me say it again. The Lord's purpose for us is that we bear fruit as the Father prunes us 
and as we abide in the vine, in order to glorify God. So we're going to center today on the subject, not only today, but next week. You know, when you uh, don't do a Sunday morning or whatever, you're going through another book, like I'm doing on Sunday night, First Kings, and then you enter two Sunday mornings, what do you preach on? Believe it or not, this becomes a great challenge. So I started out thinking about John 15 and one sermon. Next thing I know, it's become two sermons. So it's going to be this Sunday morning and next Sunday morning while Mike's gone. We're going to center on the subject of fruit bearing and what it means for the believer to bear fruit. Notice, first of all, the Lord's illustration of fruit bearing. The Lord's illustration of fruit bearing. Jesus here, as Rob read the passage for us, speaks of a vine and a vine dresser and branches and a fruit. And fruit and Jesus' disciples knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about the grapevine, so familiar in Israel. They knew all about that. It was, it's everywhere. Grapevines were everywhere. And so they knew it. Now notice the emphasis in this section. Look at verse 1. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 8, my Father is glorified by this that you bear what? Much fruit. Again, so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16, you do not choose, choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. It's obvious that the emphasis in this passage is on bearing fruit. It's pretty clear, right? Everybody should be able to see that. After all, is it unreasonable for us to expect a grapevine to produce grapes? Is that an un unreasonable, uh, is it an unreasonable, ex unrealistic expectation uh, to have an orange tree in your yard and expect it to produce oranges? I mean, after all, why, why else have it there? It's a, waste, it's, it's a waste of your time to have an orange tree in your yard that doesn't bear oranges. Well, guess who else has that expectation? The Lord does. He expects his, his people to bear fruit. That's not unrealistic. He should be able to do that. We should bear fruit. That is his purpose for us. It says it in this chapter, fruit bearing is a divine expectation. It's something that God expects. It's something, it's something that he wants. It's going to happen, as a matter of fact, he says. The disappointing thing is when a fruit-bearing uh, branch does not bear fruit. That's, have you ever had that happen? I'm not a gardener, nowhere near one, don't have a green thumb, don't plant anything. I don't do all that stuff, okay? I know that some of you here do, and that's great if you do that. And you've probably seen uh, plants or trees that you planted that didn't bear fruit that you were expecting to bear fruit. It's very disappointing. And God expects his people to bear fruit, and we'll talk about this. It's not a man-made effort. It's something that Christ does through us. But this has always been the case with God. It's always been his objective for his people to bear fruit, both in creation and redemption. You remember early on in Genesis, after God created the world, what does he say to Adam and Eve? He says, be fruitful and multiply. And that's got to do with children. But then in John 15, he says, I want you to bear fruit. That has to do with spiritual fruit. And so he does this. He gives this illustration. Now, first of all, look at the vine. Verse 1, I am the true vine, Jesus says. And, you know, in the time Jesus lived, the, uh, the economy of Israel was based on, basically, largely on agriculture. It was a, it was a farming uh, community that people grew crops. They farmed the land. They separated wheat from chaff. You read that through all the scriptures again and again and again. You see this illustration of Israel being a farming community, an agricultural-based economy. And included in all that is vineyards, which Israel is known for. They're great vineyards. Um, Jesus uses this familiar site in Israel to illustrate the point of what a genuine Christian life is. This is a great analogy. I think this illustration of the vine and the branches uh, gets to the crux of the matter for what it's all about for the Christian. I've read this many times, but every time I've looked at it, I've thought, I've stopped. I've stopped when I've come to John 15, and I thought, wow, this is what it is. This is what it's all about right here. It's all about Jesus and our relationship with him. And from that relationship comes fruit. Now, this section... Uh, John 13 through 17, this section is what's called the upper room discourse. Um, Jesus has met with his, his disciples in an upper room, and it says that you can find that in Mark 14, 15, by the way, where it says upper room, if you're wondering. It doesn't say it here. 
Uh, it's the night before Jesus goes to the cross. It's a very solemn setting. Judas has left Jesus in, in uh, John 13. He's left Jesus to begin the process of betraying him. Uh, the disciples don't know what's coming ahead, but Jesus knows what's coming ahead. And so it's a very solemn time, and so the words that he shares with his disciples are very weighty. And he addresses his disciples, and he says this, I am the true vine. Now, in the Gospel of John, I think Stephen might have talked about this today in Sunday school, there are all these I am statements, you know that. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and these point to his divinity. I'm the bread of life, and I'm the light of the world, and I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And now in John 15, he says, I am the true vine. Now, why does he call himself the true vine? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the, was, was the common symbol for the nation of Israel was the grapevine. In fact, even during the intertestament period, they had some coins that had the vine on some of their coins and printed on the coins to show that that was a symbol of Israel. And so there are many passages in the Old Testament that mention this idea of Israel being like a vine, like God's vineyard. For example, in Psalm 80, verse 8, uh, it says, You, O Lord, removed a vine from Egypt. The vine from Egypt was Israel. They were, in, they were in slavery in Egypt. And God took them out. He removed the vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted the vine, Israel, in their own land. You cleared the ground before it. It took deep root and filled the land. And so God planted his vine in Israel. But then he goes on to say in that chapter, Psalm 80, Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass by that way pick its fruit? That's a strange statement. Then in Jeremiah 2.21, he says this, I planted you, the Lord says, I planted you, Israel, a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into a de the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Again, this negative, negative connotation. Hosea 10.1, again, another illustration. He says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself, it says. He's a vine, but he's producing fruit for himself. And you can see in these passages that Israel is compared to a vine, but yet, there's, as I said, there's this negative connotation every time about them being a vine. Something's not right. A key passage is on, on this is what... Uh, Eric read earlier Isaiah 5. Turn again to Isaiah 5. I'm going to read this on, again on purpose. Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 says this. Let me sing a song now for my well-beloved, song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. This, this is God's vineyard. My beloved, my well-beloved, had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now, the, the vineyard keeper did everything he could, uh, the vine dresser, for this vine. He did all kinds of work to, to, make it, to make it happen, to make the grapes produce. And he expected it to produce good grapes. Why shouldn't he? Verse 3, And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? I've done everything I could do that, I, that I've not already done. Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and will be, it'll, it's going to be consumed. I will break down its wall. It will become trampled ground. I'll lay it waste. It will not be pruned, won't be hoed, uh, but rather briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds that no rain should rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There we go. Talking about interpreting scripture, by the way, that's as easy as it gets right there. The vineyard of the house of the Lord is the uh, of the house of, of the Lord of hosts, rather, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. You can see here that Israel is symbolically referred to as a vineyard. But the problem was they failed. <laughs> They miserably failed in their, in their mission. As you read through the Old Testament, you can see they were absolute miserable failures. They did. The intent was for them to produce, for the vine to produce good fruit, good grapes, and all they could muster was worthless grapes, wild grapes, grapes that weren't worth consuming. That's all they could come up with. 
And this is meant to, Israel, to illustrate Israel and their failed obedience to God. They were disobedient to God oftentimes, and that is what it's meant to illustrate. Now, that's, Israel has a sad history in that regard of failing God, being disobedient to God. Doesn't it remind us of ourselves, though? But now, thankfully, there's a day coming when fruitless Israel will be fruitful Israel. You see that in verses like Isaiah 27, 6. It says, in the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. That's got to do with the messianic kingdom of Christ in a coming day. So there's, this, there's a future promise to Israel. But their history's different story. It's a sad story of disobedience, and it's often one of spiritual barrenness. And so Jesus picks up on this idea in the Old Testament of Israel being the vine and being a failed vine. And then he says in John 15... He says, uh, he draws a sharp contrast between Israel and himself, and he says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. Now, notice, first of all, what he does not say. He does not say the church is the true vine, as some people apparently think he is saying here. Well, that's not what I'm reading. He didn't say anything about the church at all. He said, I'm the true vine. In, in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. Jesus is the true vine, not the church. Now, when he says this, he does not mean true as opposed to false. Israel was not a false vine. They were, in fact, God's vine. That's what it says in Isaiah 5. They, they were intended to be God's vine. That's what he planned on them being. They're not a false vine. Uh, he means this, that whereas Israel failed to produce spiritual fruit, Jesus will not fail. He's not going to fail. He's going to succeed where Israel failed. He's going to be true to what his father is seeking for, that of having a fruit-bearing uh, uh, vine, fruit that's going to be there, fruit that's going to last. He's going to produce fruit. He's the true vine. He's the ideal vine. He will do exactly what Israel did not do. He's going to do it the right way. Now, this isn't the only place that Jesus speaks of uh, bearing fruit. He says it many times in the Gospels. Uh, for, for example, uh, one of those is in Luke chapter 13. Let me read Luke 13, 6 to you through 9. Sorry we don't have the screen and the big show going on and all that today. Luke 13, 6 through 9. Uh, says here, and he began telling this parable. And again, he says this many times. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. This is a fig tree versus the grapevine. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Wow, isn't that frustrating? What if you had that in your yard? He says, Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, very nice guy, let it alone, sir, for this year too, and until I dig around it and put it in fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. And so he, ha he gives this illustration. Now, bearing fruit is a very serious matter to Jesus, very serious. If a fruit tree does not produce fruit, even the ground that it's planted in is wasted. Wasting your time, you're wasting your efforts. As one friend of mine, friend of ours, used to say, the great Nate Smith used to say, if it's fruitless, it's useless. If it's fruitless, it's useless. And that's true. And that's what Jesus said in so many words. But in the context where he's, he's contrasting himself to the failed vine, Christ is the one that's going to be a successful vine. He's actually going to bear fruit. His people are going to bear fruit through him because they're in him. They're, Christ's life flows through them, and that's how. That's the vine. Let's look at the fruit next. We're talking about spiritual fruit. What do we mean by fruit? What do we mean by spiritual fruit? Well, right away we see a, a hint of this in the passage of Isaiah chapter 5. Don't pass that. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Israel, the vineyard of the Lord, brought forth wild grapes instead of good ones. In Isaiah 5, 7, the Lord says he was looking for justice and righteousness. And then he says, but you guys produce bad fruit. I'm looking for justice and righteousness, he says. So right off the bat, we see that, that fruit... Spiritual fruit has something to do with our conduct and especially the way we treat other people. We should treat them justly and righteously and, and have the right behavior towards them. I think we could sum up that, that by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you love your neighbor as yourself, you, are, you have spiritual fruit in your life. You're producing spiritual fruit just like the Lord wants. That's what he wanted out of Israel. And yet they were unjust and unrighteous towards people. And God says, no, I want you to be just and righteous towards people and in your conduct. And that's what he wants out of us as well. 
And the New Testament also has much to say about the subject of fruit bearing. A lot of talk about fruit bearing, but there's much, uh, there's much information in the New Testament about it. For example, Rob, uh, in his prayer, talked about Titus 3.14. Titus 3.14 says, And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, that they may not be what? Unfruitful. Let our people engage in good deeds in order to meet pressing needs so they won't be unfruitful. True believers are to do good deeds. Now, good deeds don't save anybody, first of all. However, they're an indication that you're already saved. And we should be doing good deeds as believers. But in this case, in this context, doing good deeds equates with meeting the needs of the saints. Believers, all of us here, <clears throat> we have many needs, right? All kinds of needs. It never ends. Not a week goes by where some needs, several needs aren't expressed to me or Mike's bride or somebody. Uh, in the church, people don't call. They text and, hey, we've got problems over here. And so this is all an ongoing problem. And to meet their needs, that's spiritual fruit. That's bearing spiritual fruit. Helping your brothers and sisters in Christ is bearing spiritual fruit. Or, for that matter, helping anybody is bearing spiritual fruit. It's also fruit that has to do with our inner attitudes. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Wow, what a list, huh? You look at that list and you say, man, I'm out of the game, right? Uh, you know, do you see any evidence of this in your life at all? You should as a believer. There should be some evidence of this in your life. Do you have a loving attitude towards people? Here, here's how you can tell if you're bearing fruit. Do you have a loving attitude towards people, or do you treat them bitterly? Do you have, are you kind to people? Do you, do you show patience with people? Boy, I was at Chick-fil-A the other day, and I was ordering something, and uh, the next customer came and uh, the next uh, aisle, uh, next uh, person was serving them, and man, they got so impatient. They said, "I told you, it's I want this and this and this. It's not difficult, is it?" The customer was telling the, and I thought, "Man, is that really necessary?" I tell you what, a believer is supposed to be patient with people. I know that we're not always patient, but that should be what we're. That should be something that's the direction of our lives. You know, no one's perfect, but we should have these qualities in some measure. Understand what I'm saying here. It's not perfection. You, have, you should have these qualities in some measure if you're a true believer. These are the attitudes the Spirit's going to produce in you. These the Spirit produce fruit. How about Hebrews 13, 15? Through Him, it says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips <clears throat> that give thanks to His name. The fruit of our lips that give thanks to His name. Did you know that giving thanks to God and giving praise to God is bearing spiritual fruit? It's that kind of attitude that's bearing spiritual fruit. <clears throat> the Bible repeatedly stresses it again and again that we're to be thankful. Are you characterized by an attitude of thanksgiving and praise to God, or are you characterized by a lack of, or a lack of thankfulness and, and complaining constantly? You never thank God for anything. You could care less about a God and what he's given you. Man, that's an indication that there's something wrong with you spiritually. Either way, your fruit or lack of, of, of it is, is evident. It's going to become evident to others, too. And let me give you just one final one on fruit. John 5, 35 and 36. Jesus said, do not say, or he says, do you not say, rather, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. But I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white already for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit. He's gathering fruit for life eternal. That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. This is the fruit of souls that comes from faithful evangelism. People come to know Christ because you've talked to them. You've preached to them the gospel. You've witnessed to your friends at work and so on. And you've told them the gospel and they come to know Christ. And you say, well, I told people the gospel. They didn't come to know Christ. But later on down the road, some years later, they got saved. Well, guess what? You have, you have spiritual fruit because he, it says he who sows and he who reaps are both gathering fruit for eternal life. And so from the Lord's perspective, you are bearing fruit. I would go as far as to say that it's fruit bearing when you're witnessing to people, period, with the right spirit. So you can see bearing fruit, has spiritual fruit, is a wide range. I don't know that we can pin it down 100% of every little thing that you do in your life, but I'll say this, loving people is spiritual fruit. Engaging, to, to meet, engaging in good deeds to meet the needs of people is, is fruit. Giving thanks is spiritual fruit. 
Having proper attitudes that, that are produced by the Spirit is spiritual fruit. Uh, evangelizing the lost, spiritual fruit. And I would say that anything that tends to the glory of God and the good of others is spiritual fruit, ultimately. And so this is produced by the Spirit. Again, we don't manufacture spiritual fruit. Notice the branches next. The branches. <clears throat> Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, when we hear the word branch, we think of a tree branch. Um, but the word translated branch here actually means uh, a vine tendril. A vine tendril. It's like a shoot. A shoot, on a, grape, a shoot on a grapevine is actually what it is. Similar to like a branch on a tree. The idea is the same. The shoots of the, of the grapevine are meant to produce grapes. These branches represent all professing believers. These branches. They represent all professing, professing believers. Now, how do we know this? Well, uh, notice the, fra the phrase, the interesting phrase in verse 2. By the way, if you're ever doing this and you're going to preach it or teach it, you have a lot of questions to answer. And the surface it doesn't look like this. But as you get into it more, you see it more and more. It says in verse 2, Jesus says, every branch in me. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, let me make a few comments on that. First of all, the reason he said it, the reason he said it this way, is to show that if a person is truly in Christ, he's going to bear fruit. He's going to bear fruit. There are no true believers that do not possess some measure of fruit. That doesn't happen. It's not how it is. That kind of Christian does not exist. Christians are, by their very nature, fruit bearers because Christ is working through them to bear fruit. And then secondly, one thing you must understand as you read the phrase here, in me, every branch in me, here in John, do not associate that phrase. Don't run in your mind to the Apostle Paul right now. Do not associate that phrase with what the Apostle Paul says in his writings about in Christ. Don't associate the two together. For example, Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, We are his workmanship, we believers, true believers, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, it says, for good works. Now, when Paul states that believers are in Christ, he means true, genuine believers, the real deal. Now, when John records Jesus as saying, every branch in me, and by the way, it's the only time it's used, he's talking about all professing believers. Now, that's not people who say they're Christians, in other words. That's not unusual in the Gospels, by the way. If you read the Gospels, this is not unusual. You're, you're not surprised by this. Jesus has said the same thing in other places. For example, do you remember Matthew 13? Again and again in, that, in those parables, he gives the parable of the wheat and the tares, for example. The wheat represents the true people of God, but the tares, they resemble the true people of God. Boy, they look like, they're not really the people of God. They look like the people of God. The tares do. They're like weeds. They look like the wheat. And they respond like the weak, but they're, they're not the true people of God. And in the end, the Lord's going to separate the true from the false. And throughout Matthew 13, the same idea is presented again and again, the good fish and the bad fish. And it goes on like that. But you don't only see it in, in Matthew. John has it in his gospel as well. And this is what's very interesting. Go with, back with me to John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6. Now, in John chapter 6, this is, by the way, where Mike Sprott was fired, preaching this chapter at our church that we were at originally, <laughs> preaching through this chapter. You know, it's funny because <laughs> the same thing happens in John 6 that happened there. I said, get out of here. We don't want you anymore. And they got rid of him for preaching the truth. Uh, I still remember that last sermon he preached over there, Scandalon. Do you remember that? Yeah. John chapter 6. Jesus has made statements that are very tough to hear and that offend people greatly. What a, what a surprise, right? When he's preached the truth, I heard recently, a few weeks ago, there was someone here who was greatly offended by some things that Mike said from the pulpit. That's, that's going to happen when you preach the truth. Now look at John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus is saying very tough things like this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, now imagine yourself, yourself being there, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. True drink. Now, that's not easy to hear. You're out there in the crowd. Unless you have ears to hear, Jimmy, unless you have ears to hear, you can't hear that, right? You don't want to hear that. What is he saying? 
Well, he's telling them spiritual truth as often Jesus does in a way that people don't always get it because he knows who rejects him out there. He knows. And so he's, these people are dead in their sins, and he's telling them this truth, and they don't get it. They don't get it. He's basically saying, I'm the Messiah. You have to believe on me. You have to come to me for eternal life, and they don't, want it. They don't get it. They don't know what he's talking about. They can't grasp it. Look at John chapter 6, verse 59 through 69. He says this, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, Therefore, many of his disciples, notice the phrase, therefore, many of his disciples. Who are we talking about here? His disciples. When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Or the King James, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? I don't get it. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled. His disciples grumbled at this. They said, he said to them, does this cause you to stumble? I love the way Jesus uh, works in the Gospels, by the way. It's not like anything anybody preaches today that you think he would work a certain way. They want him to work a certain way, but he works a different way, right? Does this cause you to stumble? Verse 62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? <clears throat> it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. It's they, by the way, who he knew who they were, who did not believe, not only one person here, and who it was that should betray him. That's one person, but the rest are other people. And he was saying in verse 65, he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. People don't like to hear that either, if there are in a certain churches, right? Verse 66, As a result of this, many of who? His disciples withdrew, <coughs> and they were not walking with him anymore. Verse 67, So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a clear confession that is. But who is having a hard time with, uh, with what Jesus is saying? Who's having a problem with what Jesus is saying? His disciples, certain of his disciples, it says. So much so to the point that they quit following him. That phrase, they quit following him, or where it says they didn't walk with him anymore, has the idea of calling it quits for good. We're done with you. They permanently left him. They had no intention of following him ever again. It's over with. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that true disciples permanently withdraw from Jesus? Do they permanently withdraw from him? No, they continue to follow him, as the other, others did. Now, conclusion to this... <laughs> There are some people who appear to be disciples of Christ, but they're really not in reality. A lot of that going on, by the way, in this country. And then look at verses 70 and 71. Another example following on the heels of that one. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? I chose you personally. I handpicked you, the twelve. Read about that in Matthew 10. And yet one of you is a devil. Now he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus handpicked Judas as one of his disciples. He did it on purpose. He knew exactly who, what he was going to do. He knew he would be, he's not fooled by this. He knew he would betray him. He knew it was going to happen. You know, think about this for a minute. Judas Iscariot, a man associated with the twelve, a man on the inside, the inside, a man, the treasurer of the group, no less. That's a great guy to have for your treasurer, right? And yet, this is a man who turned his back on Christ, Judas Iscariot. Can't get any closer to Christ than he got, can you? He's in the inner circle. Judas spent time in the presence of Christ, hearing his word, and seeing his miracles, and observing his holy character, and he left Christ. He's a phony. Look at John. So you can see how the uses of, of John, how John is using this idea in John chapter 6. These disciples aren't really disciples after all. Look at John chapter 8, verse 30. John 8, 30. He says here, Jesus is speaking again, verse 30, as he spoke these things, under, look at this phrase carefully, as he spoke these things, John 8, 30, many came to believe in him. Is that what it says? Many came to believe in him. And so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, confirm what we just read, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, 
If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. <clears throat> I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. The people that just believed on him? Because my word has no place in you, he says. But I thought it says they believed on him. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Oh, well, we got different fathers now. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, again he says it, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, question mark, after they believed in him, if God were your father, you would love me because I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you understand what I, why do you not understand why I'm saying it is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Wow. After he said, after it says they believed on him. You don't want to do, you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand the truth because there's no truth in him. And then look at verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them. You people who say you've believed on me because you are not of God. Verse 54, Jesus said, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him. But I know him. And if I say I don't know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. How about that? They went from believing in Christ to trying to kill him. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that a true believer would try to kill Jesus? I don't think so. I think he would probably love Jesus. These people, are, even though it says they believed in him, they're not true believers. This same author, John, it, it, when you see his other epistles that he wrote, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he says the same type thing. Uh, for example, in 1 John, let me just read this to you, 1 John 2, 18 through 20. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even so now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know that it is the last hour. These people went out from us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They were never really a part of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. In other words, they left the truth altogether. They went out from us so that it would be shown that they were not all of us. But you, the true believers, have an anointing from the Holy One. In other words, these people left, their, left the church. They were a part of the church. They looked to be believers. They sat in pews. They looked to be real believers, but they left the truth altogether. They didn't stay with the truth. They didn't stay with the people of God. They showed their true colors. You know, but the true believer is contrasted in that he's got the Holy Spirit. He's going to stay with the truth. And unlike they are. Now, these are all examples of apostates, people who profess to believe the truth. They profess it. They say with their mouth, I believe the truth. I believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You ever talk to people like that? Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh, well, how come you never go to church or you never are interested in things of God or you, uh, you know, you, don't, you have abandoned your old lifestyle and all these things? They're pretenders. John 6 calls these apostates Christ's disciples. That's what it says. John chapter 8 says they believed in him. John 15 says every branch in me. You know, in churches across America and the world, there are people who are like this. They say, I'm a Christian, but in reality, they're not. They're only professing believers, you see. They're Christians in name only. That's all they are. This is the kind of language that John uses in his gospel. This is what you need to understand. This is how John speaks. But you can see these people really don't belong to Christ. They're only associated with him. They're only associates but they don't belong to him. We're talking about the branches right now, and there's two kinds of branches mentioned here. There's fruitless branches and fruitful branches. Look at verse 2. 
Every branch in me, first of all, the fruitless branches, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, most everyone is, a, is aware of the fact that there are trees out there, as I said earlier, fruit-bearing trees that have branches that don't always produce fruit. That's not unusual. You've seen it in your lifetime even, probably. Um, they don't bear fruit. In this illustration, these people are, fruit, are professing believers. But genuine believers do produce fruit. They will produce fruit, and that is a way to distinguish the true from the false. Remember Jesus in Matthew 7, 15, he said, Beware of the false prophets. He said, Because they come to you in sheep's clothing. Yeah, they look like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by what? Their fruits. Their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor fig trees, figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. You know what the vine dresser does with these bad branches? He takes them away. He gets rid of them. He gets rid of the rotting dead branches so that they're hindering the fruit from producing in the vine. He gets rid of those people. Where does he take them? Verse 6 picks up the subject again. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That sounds serious, doesn't it? They are thrown away. They dry up. They're gathered, thrown into the fire. They're burned. This has to do with judgment. Like John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.10, he said, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's speaking of judgment upon people who are professing believers but not possessing believers. They really don't have Christ at all. They're professing to, and we know the ultimate judgment is the lake of fire. That is their, that is their, where, their destination. Now, the professing believer who is only pretender is the only pretender. He's taken to judgment. And Matthew 13 explains what happens to the tares. We talked about the tares and the wheat. What happens to the tares, false believers? Verse 30 says in Matthew 13, Allow both wheat and tares to grow together until the harvest. <clears throat> and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my, in, into my barn. And so the believer, in name only, the pretender, is going to be face the, the wrath of God, whereas the, the true believer is going to enter the presence of God. So let me ask you this. Does that mean the Lord comes through our church and wipes out everybody who's not a true believer right now? It's not how it works. He waits until the day of judgment. That's what Matthew 13 is teaching. They both grow together in the church. They look alike. Tares and wheat in the, in the pews, in the seats. They look alike. They grow together until the day of judgment. Then he judges them. J.C. Ryle, favorite preacher, some of you in here, by the way, back in the 1800s. We've talked about his sermons before. J.C. Ryle in England said this. He asked this question. <clears throat> when has the Lord ever removed from the church all graceless believers? In other words, all people who have never experienced the saving of grace of God. When has he ever done that? He doesn't do that. For 1,800 years, Ryle said, back in the 1800s, for 1,800 years he has allowed them to exist in the church, and he's not taking them away, nor will he take them away till the day of judgment. Could it be that there's some sitting here today who are tares among the wheat, maybe fruitless among the fruitful? You're, you're, you're those who are the false among the true. Could it be there's somebody in this church today like that? Better examine yourself whether you're in the faith or not. Can you find any evidence of salvation in your life at all? Any evidence? Have you truly come to know Christ by faith and repented of your sin? Have you done this? This is not meant to scare true believers, by the way. I want to do that. It's meant to awaken unbelievers who may be among us, who are really pretenders. Examine yourself whether you're in the faith. There was an evangelist back in the 1800s by the name of Charles Finney. He preached in the western part of the state of New York. Now, under his preaching, many thousands of people made a profession of faith. Thousands and thousands of people made a profession of faith. There was a problem, however, with this whole situation. Charles Finney was a heretic. He didn't, he didn't believe, for example, and he rejected the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ to the believer. Well, if Christ's righteousness is not imputed to me, how am I going to be righteous at all? I'm not righteous. I'm a sinner. The only, only thing good about me at all is Christ in me, hope of glory, right? His righteousness. There's nothing about me that's any good at all. 
And so he's denying this doctrine, basically denying the doctrine of justification at all, for, all, for all purposes. He denied that the human race inherited Adam's sin. He had a lot of strange ideas. He used humanistic methods of evangelism, trying to persuade people by his, by his preaching and by uh, having the mourners, what they call the mourners bench, the anxiety, anxiety bench, where the invitation probably started, by the way, people coming forward to the mourners bench to be saved because he put them under an emotional spell to try to get them saved. He had all these crazy methods of evangelism, all this stuff. And so, uh, do you know what happened to many of his converts? After, as time went on, they fell into cults <clears throat> and false doctrine and theological errors of all kinds. Listen to this. One of the contemporaries of Charles Finney said this, During ten years, hundreds, perhaps thousands, were annually reported to be converted on all hands. You ever been a part of a church like that? They're reporting a lot of conversions? I've been there many times in these churches. I know what they do. We had 200 people saved today. But on Sunday morning, I don't see any of them. During ten years, hundreds or perhaps thousands were annually reported to be converted on all hands, but now it is admitted that real converts are comparatively few, comparatively few. It is declared even by Charles Finney himself, listen to what Finney said, the great body of those converts are a disgrace to religion. He even admitted it. Finney himself later said this, I was often instrumental in bringing Christians under great conviction and into a, into a state of temporary repentance and faith. But falling short of urging them up to a point where they would become so acquainted with Christ as to abide in him, they would, of course, soon relapse into their former state. Do you know why these people relapsed? Do you know why they went off into false doctrine? Because they were never saved in, to begin with. They were never in Christ to begin with. They're only associated with Christ, Christ and nothing more. Again, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Now, let me say also that verses 2 and 6 are not speaking of a genuine believer losing his salvation. As some have said... Not talking about a genuine believing, a believer losing your salvation, his salvation, her salvation. Because in the same gospel in John 10 earlier, Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give what? Eternal life to them. Eternal, it's eternal life based on the grace of God, not, not temporal life based on my performance. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's not going to happen. The loss of salvation may be the theology that some man holds to, but it's not the one that God holds to. When God saves a person, he saves them eternally. He does a full and thorough job of it. Not a halfway job. That's the branches. Now, note the, the fruit. Now, notice the, the fruit-bearing branches in verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> every he takes away the, the, the bad branches, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You know, a true believer is going to bear fruit. It's going to bear fruit. That's the point you need to understand. Like it says in the parable, in Matthew 20, 13, 23, it says there, The seed sown on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, it says, and brings forth some 30-fold, some 60, some, uh, some 100. Uh, you know, a believer is going to bring forth fruit. It's an it's a, it's a unmistakable evidence of their salvation that they're going to bring forth fruit. It may be different amounts of fruit, maybe a little bit, maybe not so much. But you're going to have something in your life that's going to be fruit. And at different times, it may be more than it is at other times. You know, I'm not saying everybody here is a spiritual giant. I'm not saying we don't go through times of, of lapses in our faith and where we sin and do things we shouldn't do or we slack off. I'm not saying that. But tr and true believers are never going to reach sinless perfection in this life. But well, I'll tell you one thing, they're going to bear fruit. It's going to happen. Let me ask you a question as we close, and we'll pick it up next week from here. Where do you stand with Christ today? Think about yourself. Where do you stand with Christ? Everybody looks like you're saved to me when I was looking on the audience. And you think I'm saved, don't you? <laughs> we, we, we all look that way, right? But let me ask you a question. Are you a true, genuine believer today? Are you truly identified with Christ, or are you only associated with him in some way? Maybe you're religious only. You really belong to him. Are you just a church member? Or are you a member of the body of Christ? You, you know, you know how to, people know how to talk like Christians, don't they? You ever be uh, around someone who says they're a Christian, they're kind of telling you stuff you want to hear, but you're like, you don't get it, you know? Uh, people know what, how to say things that we want to hear. People carry their Bibles. People come to church. People look the part. 
people bow their heads when they're praying, all this stuff, people are playing the role of a Christian, but it's all an act a lot of times. There's no fruit in your life. The Lord is looking for spiritual fruit, and all he's finding is worthless wild fruit that amounts to a hill of beans. Nothing at all. Let me ask you some diagnostic questions as we close here. <clears throat> do, you de do you desire to know the Lord in a greater way? Do you? That's, a, that's evidence of a true believer. He wants to know the Lord in a greater way. He's not, let me ask you this. Are you dissatisfied, dissatisfied with your present personal, your present spiritual condition? That's a good sign. If you're dissatisfied, you're not happy with your life because you want to be more spiritual, right? Do you want to read the Bible and hear it preached? That's a sure sign of a true believer. And trust me, unbelievers could care less about the Bible or hearing it preached. They could care less about it. Do you turn to the Lord in prayer and find yourself in need of communion with Him? That's a good sign. Sign of a believer. Are you frustrated with sin in your life and you want to do something about it? That's a good sign. Sin of a true believer. That's how a believer thinks. Are you troubled in your soul as to your lack of commitment to the Lord? That's also good because it shows that you want to do more for the Lord. And this is, again, we do things in His power. We understand this, right? But what I'm trying to say is the believer is not perfect. True believers fail and they fall and they stumble and they make a mess of things. But they don't want to remain there because the Holy Spirit convicts them. And they want to get right with God and they want to confess and repent of their sin. A true believer is well acquainted. I say this to encourage those of you who may be doubting, though you're really saved. A true believer truly uh, is, is uh, he, he's acquainted with his failures. He's sorrowful over them. But he's never going to forsake Christ permanently. Never going to do it. He may sin. We may sin like Peter did, but we're also going to weep like Peter did and get right with God, right? And then continue to serve Christ as Peter did and bear fruit. Not going to just throw in the towel and give it up. And that's a true believer. Where do you stand today? Christ died on the cross for sinners to save them from sin. Many of us in this room can testify he saved us from our sin. That's why we're here. He died on the cross and he rose again and he, seek, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you've been fooling everybody, everybody into thinking that you're a true believer, when in reality you are not, may this be the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word today. Pray that uh, as we close out today that those who truly, Lord, we don't want to hurt anybody's faith today, certainly not. We pray you'll confirm and assure the hearts of the true believers in their heart that they are believers, Lord. And we pray that they will bear, that we'll all bear fruit for your name and your glory. We also pray, Lord, that for those who are truly not believers today, but think they are, they're fooled, open their eyes to the truth, uh, help them not to be deceived any longer. We know Satan wants to keep them, keep them in deception. And we pray you'll open their eyes to the truth so they'll truly believe the gospel. And we pray the rest of us will bear fruit for the glory of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.